I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News and author of the best-selling book, Breaking the News. And today on the Breitbart News Daily Podcast, we're going to do a little different format. No monologue today, no caller of the day, uh, but we have two interviews, and we're going to hear today from... Richard Casper, the co-founder of CreativeVets, which is a super cool group that I discovered just recently who tries to heal veterans with music. And their goal is to remap and repurpose old negative memories as positives through songwriting. It's a super great initiative and one I'm really excited to throw my support behind. And a great interview as well, and I think timely on this Thanksgiving weekend to play that for you. Plus, we were going to hear from Professor James Moore. Now, James Moore is a very interesting guy. He's not a traditional right-winger. He's very academic. And he is a professor at the University of Southern California, and he's made national news because he put up a Blue Lives Matter flag on his office door, and he refused to take it down when he triggered the libs and much of his school. But he has held the line, and I love when you find these people who are kind of doing heroic things in their walk of life. Uh, also, a funny story with Professor Moore is that his sister is our vice president of comms for Breitbart, Elizabeth Moore, which does an amazing job for us. And it is a treat to talk to him, someone who can go deep on some of the issues. So that'll be the show for the day, and I hope you enjoy it. But first, I do want to tell you about AMAC. AMAC is a great group. If you are on the left and you join AARP, I get it. But if you're on the right, you shouldn't. You should join AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. It is a conservative advocacy and benefits organization that has more than 2 million members and counting. AMAC has become one of the most significant conservative groups in the country. And joining AMAC gives you access to money-saving benefits, cutting-edge news, and a magazine full of insightful takes on today's most important issues. But most importantly, AMAC is working tirelessly to preserve the freedom secured by our Constitution. With a full-time presence on Capitol Hill, AMAC is pushing back against the efforts to defund our police, weaken our borders, and replace your freedom with government controls. Stand with me and over 2 million patriots by joining right now at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Breitbart. The benefits are great, but the cause is greater. Join today at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. We've got Richard Casper on the line, co-founder and executive director of CreativeVets, creativevets.org. I want to make sure I spell it correct, C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E-T-S.org. And this is a group that helps uh, veterans get into the arts. And I love this. Two things I love, veterans. I love the arts. I love the veterans. We only have the best veterans here on the show. Um, uh, Richard, great to have you on. Tell me about your group. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So CreativeVets is a nonprofit that's helping empower wounded veterans heal through arts and music, but we do it in a pretty cool way because we're trying to reach those 20 suicides a day in the veteran military space and the 14 that don't actually seek help. So when we build our programs, we do it to where they're, you can't really turn them down. So we'll fly veterans from anywhere in the country to Nashville, Tennessee, to write backstage at the Grand Ole Opry with a number one songwriter hit writer about their story for the first time as they're paired with another veteran uh, to, to help them tell that story. We pay for their flights and their food and their housing and everything. And we also do that at some of the best art schools, like the School of the Arts here in Chicago and University of Southern California and Belmont here in Nashville. So how do people get involved? What type of people do you appeal to? Are there any success stories you've had so far that you care to share? Yeah, I mean, most most of the people at first, it was reference-based, because I myself am a Marine Corps veteran who suffered four separate blast by IEDs left me with a left traumatic brain injury and my buddy was shot and killed beside me and so when I transitioned home 
I struggled really bad, and I randomly found art and music. I didn't know it beforehand. And so at first it was me reaching out to the people I knew that needed the most. And then as we kept growing and growing, we've had a, just a ton of people reach out to us just hearing the other veteran songs. And that's really who we're going after are those veterans that think they, they need to tell a story and they don't have the words for it because that's what the songwriters do so well. And we have a ton of success stories. One of the coolest ones was a veteran. When he reached out, I actually thought it was him this whole time. It happened to be his wife because his anxieties and depression were so bad. He couldn't handle his own emails, his own phone calls. Wow. Um, when I was wow. texting, thinking I was texting him, I was actually texting his wife. I didn't know until he had showed up in Nashville. They said they wanted to drive because they couldn't fly. I didn't know how bad the problem was. And then when he got there, he asked if his wife could join him in the room, and I said no. I was just like, this is where we draw the line just because I want you to be open and free with me. I told you what I went through. You told me what you went through. I'm going to be your battle buddy. We're going to go in there. We're going to tell your story, and anything you can't tell, I'll help you tell that story. And we go into this room, and we start telling his story about the Battle of Nazaria. Uh, it was just it, incredible the things that he had to endure and come home with. And we wrote a song called Nazaria, and he went home after that, a absolutely changed man. It's crazy to think that just a three- to four-hour writing session could do that much, but we're not just writing a song. We're legitimately remapping the way that they think about their experiences, and we're repurposing these old negative memories as positives because he says stuff like, well, I can't tell my wife this, but I had to do X in Iraq. And then when we write a song about it, the first person he sends the song to is his wife because now he has a song Incredible. with hit writers that he's so excited about. And so now he travels. He actually spoke at our five-year gala, like going from not being able to handle anything to speaking in front of 200 people at our five-year anniversary. And now he goes on trips all the time with his family, and you can't stop him now. It's absolutely amazing. Um, Richard Casper again is my guest, co-founder, executive director of Creative Vets, creativevets.org, where Nashville uh, songwriters and uh, m music uh, industry veterans help literal veterans tell their stories and create some pretty incredible art in the process. Um, it, tell me a little bit about how this came about and who are the type of people that are helping you with this project, because this is not a small lift what you're doing. It's the, you got to get talented people who are going to dedicate time to it. Uh, it's pretty cool, but how are you able to pull it off? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because it's really hard to break into this in industry for one. And I've only been in Nashville for five to six years, even though we've been a nonprofit since 2013. And uh, the nonprofit came obviously from my tragedies and me struggling. And, and I thought, hey, I'm tired. I'm a six foot five combat Marine, uh, Purple Heart recipient, and I didn't want to cry in front of people. But every time I tried to tell the story of my gunner who was shot and killed, Luke Gebson, I would cry. And I said, if only I had a song, I could just give it to people and walk away. So now I'm not crying. His life gets to live on through that. And so when I met a hit writer, he has like, he wrote Alan Jackson's first number one hit. He wrote Redneck Crazy. He wrote a ton of songs. When I first met him in Chicago, I just poured my heart out to him. I said, hey, if I come to you in Nashville, will you help me tell my story? I've been trying to do this for a year writing a song, but it doesn't put him on the pedestal I need it to. And he said yes to me and nobody and living in Chicago. And after I traveled down and turned my, my story into a song and a half in three hours, I just knew I needed to do this for other veterans. And so now every time I, I would come to Nashville with a veteran, I would recruit more songwriters. Every time I'd go to these writers rounds here, hear a hit song uh, sung on the stage, I'd go up to the writer afterwards and say, hey, would you want to help my veterans? And so we went from just writing back, someone's like random back house, to now backstage at the Opry, which just uh, two weeks ago we wrote with Justin Moore and Casey Beathard. Um, before that, it was like Craig Morgan and Tyler Farr. 
and a bunch of other artists and writers. And so it's been this long grind, but I knew what I was doing when I got here. I knew how important it was, and it would save and change lives. So I wasn't coming to Nashville with my own dream, like to me being an artist. I came with saving veterans' lives. So it opened so many more doors than what would typically happen, which ended up leading to a deal with Big Machine Records so that we could release our veteran-created music uh, for veterans by veterans with artists like Aaron Lewis and Vince Gill. They both sing wow. on a song we wrote called They Call Me Doc that's now streaming everywhere. It's been absolutely incredible. Uh, tell me about just a little bit about the songwriting process in uh, Nashville, because I got a couple of people peripherally uh, the, uh, who are in the music world, and I don't know the world very well, but it sounds very fascinating the way songs are written. And I think now the way that the contracts are drawn up, it's that's the most lucrative thing you can do is write songs. Basically, I think even more than the performance, it, it seems like it was super competitive. Um, but also a real subculture that as someone who grew up in Hollywood, even I don't fully understand. Could you give us a little insight into it? Yeah, it's, it is really hard to understand the full scope of the music industry, especially songwriting, because you have songwriters, like so many different royalties. Like you have the performance royalties, you have sync royalties, you have master royalties, which is crazy. But when you put, say, four people in a room in Nashville, it's actually different than when you put four people in a room in L.A. Because in L.A., the way they write when you come out of the song, they kind of tally up how much they've all written and they just give percentages. So if I say, hey, I wrote 80% of the song, I get 80% of the royalties coming out of this when we put it out there and hopefully it gets cut. And then Nashville is just an even split because you don't really know what's going to sell the song. And I love the way Nashville does it because who knows if it's the hook that, that really sold the song or if it was the bulk of the song that sold it. And so you'll never truly know. So in Nashville, you just go into a room and it's kind of split up and shared like that. And then the competitiveness comes in getting the song cut because everyone is trying to get it cut. They have things here in Nashville. Um, it's slipping my brain what they're actually called, but like lead sheets. They'll send out lead sheets saying Blake Shelton wants an upbeat, uh, up-tempo country song. And, and uh, Brad Paisley wants this like really awesome hit, like veteran song. And so they write every week in Nashville, all the published, published writers are writing to that sheet, trying to get these, these cuts. And that's when it becomes competitive. But actual songwriters are not – it doesn't seem like they're very competitive because if, if you have a friend who is supposed to write with you on a certain day and all of a sudden they say, hey, I can't write with you. i got to write with Kent Blasey, like who wrote a bunch of Garth Brooks songs. They're like, oh, my gosh, awesome. Go do it. Because they know that later on you're going to start writing with them. If they get a number one, they're going to pull you back in because they really enjoy writing with you. And so it's a little bit different here in Nashville. But the whole process of trying to get a song on the radio is almost impossible, even with us with – Aaron Lewis and Justin yeah. Warren, Craig Campbell and Love and Theft singing our songs. We're still on all the streaming platforms, but we haven't been able to get one of those to reach radio. I'm so I'm so interested in this because I've got a, a number of friends who are Hollywood screenwriters, and they have the same issue that they can write all day and sell stuff frequently, and still rarely becomes something that you see on TV or turns into a movie. And it just seems like that's the similar process with Nashville songwriting because it's just such a big uh, explosive industry and it's just so, so interesting. So thank you for letting me pick your brain on that, Richard. Uh, let's come back to uh, creative ads because have, I want to talk about how it's been received because it's such a amazing idea to me. And it sounds like there's been a lot of support. Have you gotten any pushback or are people basically thinking that this is, this is pretty cool and they want to be a part of it? I haven't gotten really hardly any pushback that much because each time I go to somewhere new, like we're the first nonprofit to partner with the Country Music Hall of Fame's Words and Music program. 
they never had an adult education uh, wing of their, their institute. And I would just go to them because, again, I know I'm trying to get to the veterans that need it the most, especially the Vietnam veterans who are one of the highest rates of suicides who don't seek programming. I knew if I can get with these big institutions, then I'm more likely to get a veteran to fly out. And in fact, we did get one Vietnam veteran who never sought help fly out because he got a right with Charlie Warsham backstage at the Opry. So almost everywhere I go, it's awesome. And the one thing, the one place I thought I might hit friction points was with the art institutes. Because I'm thinking, okay, here we are veterans, combat disabled veterans, trying to go to some of these most like liberal art schools in the country because I know that this art education is going to save their lives. But they just opened their doors the moment I went to the school there in Chicago and pitched this saying, hey, we're going to pay for the veterans tuition, housing, food all three weeks. And I want to teach them how to transfer their warrior brain to artist brain and come to school like normal students with your students and interact with them. And they just instantly say yes, which comes to the conclusion that I believe that truly believe that almost everyone loves veterans, no matter what side you're on. They believe in the veteran and believe in what they can do. And so even at USC, University of Southern California, they opened their doors right up. We hosted a, a winter program with six veterans flying in, and nobody gave us any crap for, for the stuff we're doing. So it's been pretty well-received everywhere I go. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you about your hopes for the project. Do you hope that you're going to expand it even more? Is there a limit to what you want to do? Is the and Maybe you put out a whole album of uh, some of the songs you've created. Is, it there, is there a plan that you could share with us? Yeah, so with the music specifically, because you never, I meet plenty of veterans who say they don't like art. I hardly meet anybody that doesn't like music. Never met one single human that doesn't like music. And so the music's what we've really been leaning on to get to the veterans. And that's why we partner with Big Machine to release them. And that's why we have, we actually release a song every single 20th of every month. Um, If you follow Creative It's on any stream platform like Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is, you'll see that we'll release another one to bring up the idea that, hey, there's 20 veterans killing themselves. Listen to this music because for veterans, by veterans, but civilians are going to understand us a little bit more by doing it and their family member. But I want to go to the next level, and I want to be included into the military. As veterans are transitioning out through the SEPs and TAPS program, I want an actual emotional intelligent course on the arts and music because when veterans leave, they're not going to seek it. And the problem is that they teach us how to not be vulnerable when we're at war, and that's fine. I needed that. When my buddy was shot and killed beside me, I had to put another person up in the gun next to where he used to sit and keep moving on. That's what saved my life was to not think about it. But the moment I transitioned out of the military, I needed them to hand me my vulnerability back and be like, hey, it's okay to cry. It's okay to say things. And it's okay to let things off your chest. And so I would love a creative course inside the military as they're transitioning to teach them that, you know, 40 years down the road, when you smell a smell that reminds you of war, you could turn to art and music. And it'll empower you because you're doing it for yourself getting this out of you in a way that's not turned into alcohol. Um, it's so, so good. Such good stuff. Richard Casper, co-founder, executive director of Creative Vets, creativevets.org. Uh, tell me something, and this will be the last one for the day. Tell me something that for those of us who are huge supporters of veteran communities and want us to be there for veterans and respect them so much. It's still very abstract for a lot of us, even someone like me who's interviewed dozens of vets over the years, including combat vets, uh, still to, to know exactly what it's like to having gone through that. Uh, and it just seems, especially to come home with injuries, PTSD, et cetera. It is share with something that those of us who are at home, what we can do to better understand um, what veterans have gone through and what they're going through now once they've come home. 
Yeah, as you know, most of us don't want to talk about it, especially when we come home. But exactly. we love people who are truly listening to us. And so like you asking thoughtful questions about experiences and things that we're doing is the same way you do with a veteran, treating them like humans. Uh, we just had a, a veteran in town named Jerry who has 100% burns over his whole face. And so obviously wow. people know that. But when people come up to him, and I see the ones that he really connects with are the ones that are just like, hey, thank you so much for your service. I really appreciate it. I just want to stop and say hey to you all. And they keep walking, and it's not like, hey, what happened to you? What was this? This mm-hmm. specific thing. It's, it's a little bit harder when you're doing that. But to better understand us, and again, this is, you know, I'm telling people to go listen to our music because I really do think you'll understand. When you hear some of these, these songs, like there's a veteran who lost his leg, has burns over 60% of his body, and you'd think you'd understand him. But he wrote a song called Until It Feels Like Home because he said, I walked through hell for so long, it felt like home. And that's why I don't feel comfortable at my real home because I did that for wow. so long. And now his family understanding his thought process knows how to talk to him, knows how to make those thoughtful questions. Richard Casper, again, uh, really, really well stated. And uh, you're a great spokesman for some really important stuff. Uh, what can people do if they want to get involved and help you out? Well, we'd love love people to listen to our music, stream it all over, because the good thing about royalties actually come back to our organization to continuously nice. – bring veterans to us because we do have a pretty long waiting list as you could probably tell with this kind of once in a lifetime yeah that's what i was hoping i'm I'm hoping you're gonna be able to expand it i'm hoping it gets bigger because it seems like i mean it's just as i said the proverbial no-brainer yes and so donations obviously help us expand our programs across the country and help this waiting list so uh, i appreciate anything from anyone so where can people stream is there a is there a kind of a central place um where people can go because i'm i assume it's everywhere but i mean some of these platforms are so sprawling now uh, what are the best ways just to get if they want to hear the music yeah if they go to creativefs.org and they click on our music section it actually goes to a tab where everywhere music's listened to so it has uh, oh. even napster or whatever it is and youtube <laughs> and uh, spotify and every streaming platform there is it goes right to it but just look even on youtube you can find our streaming playlist and listen to some of the music excellent okay we'll keep up the good work and check back in with me down the road i really appreciate it and i will do appreciate you take a quick break I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed everything is getting expensive. We're in the biggest economic crisis since 2008 and the government's printing trillions and trillions of dollars. Consumer prices are the highest we've seen in 30 years. Inflation is certainly here to stay. And if the government continues its out of control printing and spending, the dollar could continue its freefall and lose its coveted role as the world's reserve currency. So how do you protect your money, your retirement, your savings? Well, American Hartford Gold can show you how to hedge your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. They'll even help you move your existing IRA or 401k out of the volatile stock market and into a precious metals IRA. And they make it easy. They're the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau, and they have thousands of satisfied clients. And if you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 866-670-7660. That's 866-670-7660 or text ALEX to 65532. Again, that's 866-670-7660 or text ALEX to 65532.
Next, we're going to hear from Professor James Moore. He's got an amazing story, and it always is good to go deep with people who can do so intellectually. It's an exciting thing that the talk radio format, as I often say, offers that you know the TV format can't as well. So hopefully you'll enjoy this one. I think you will. Let's play it. I want to bring in Professor James Moore, USC Professor of Engineering and Policy. Uh, Professor Moore's got many degrees from Northwestern and Stanford, Northwestern again and Stanford again, including a doctorate. And he is, teaches at USC Viterbi School of Engineering. But he is best known maybe in conservative circles at this point for being a somewhat famous professor now for putting up a Blue Lives Matter flag and refusing to take it down because, boy, only a monster would want to support our law enforcement officials. Uh, Professor, great to have you on the broadcast. Uh, this is a what, what a wild uh, piece of um, uh, nonviolent um, uh, re- resistance and protest you put out there by displaying this flag and not, refusing to take it down. Can you tell us the story? I would be happy to. I put the flag up at the uh, top of the academic year in late August and left it there. I wanted to communicate um a number of things, and um, by and large, things were pretty quiet until the uh, student newspaper decided to run a story about the flag and interviewed a few students, and then College Fix published something about the flag and um, a few other media folks. And after that, uh, I heard from the central administration that you know they would prefer it if I took the flag down. And it was a, a polite request, and we had a polite discussion. And, I declined and explained the reasons to them that I've declined. Uh, I've since had a few students communicate with me directly, and I've explained to them. And that's, you know, it's fine. They've been polite, and I've explained why I haven't taken the flag down and don't intend to. Um, Then I've uh, also heard from a lot of students who uh, have knocked on my door and said that they're really happy it's there and they're grateful and uh, that was part of what I was trying to communicate. I was trying to reach out to uh, students who are uh, conservative, or I'll just I'll just say anybody who's not progressive, right? Because from sure. the, the progressive point of view, anybody who's not progressive is some flavor of a conservative, and um, remind them that even though they really get they they hear nothing about um, alternative points of view on campus, alternative being anything that's not progressive that, in fact, there are alternative points of view in play, um, that they are entitled to their own voice and their own perspective and to reach their own conclusions, and that if they um, stand with those conclusions and explain them, that they're unlikely to be punished. Uh, There might be consequences. Um, They might be asked to engage in um, the theater of ideas and uh, have to talk about what their rationales are and explain what they're up to. But uh, you know, ultimately it was something that was healthy and good and constructive for the organization and the institution and uh, their own educations. And by and large, that part of the objective appears to be uh, within reach. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Do you feel as though the willingness to engage in the theater of ideas is waning? Because it feels to me that it is. Uh, maybe there is a, a bit of a, maybe the pendulum starting to swing back. But this is something that is, I've found very disturbing is it's a trend I've noticed throughout my adult life is that there's been a increasing reluctance to engage in ideas, not so much from the right, particularly from the left, but even to the right to a small degree. 
uh, with ideas that people find overly challenging. And uh, what does that make the environment like, if you agree at all, uh, on a university campus, which was supposed to be, that used to be the whole purpose of the university? It's been a real culture shift over the years. And it's been, you know, first we tended, I think, to ignore it or to to make light of it. Um, we would encounter, and we being more economically oriented folks, uh, more market oriented folks, would encounter um, increasing volume on the left in opposition to those ideas. And we were inclined to listen and say, okay, it's a university, that's the way things are supposed to be. Um, but what I didn't realize was happening was that uh, bit by bit, uh, small uh, minority. A, a, a bare majority, let me put it that way, of uh, really liberal uh, voices were making personnel decisions that resulted in more liberal voices. And if you have a group that is really relatively intolerant of dissent acquiring um, additional members, and you're in a, a democratic context where um, votes are determining personnel outcomes what you're going to get is ultimately a group that is homogenous and or nearly homogenous. And I think that's where a lot of the willingness to engage has gone. I think that's where it's dissipated. Um, there's no one to engage with, really. Yeah. Um, there are more students than there are faculty, so I know there are conservative students. I meet them. But uh, there's a very, I think, small number of conservative faculty. Um, we've got there are three conservative groups that I advise on campus, and well, that's per I'm perfectly happy to do that kind of work. I, I would rather do more teaching and research um, or other kinds of service. Um, well, I, I do love contact with the students. The only reason I advise three such groups is there just isn't anyone else to do it, and so I'm uh, I feel obligated to do it. And I'm I, I think it's harming us intellectually. I think it, it's going to diminish the competitiveness of American yeah. universities. It does make America, as we get more uh, ideologically tribal, I think it makes America more boring and more divided and generally less pleasant. But in terms of you being a professor, uh, it, it does seem like it's going to, I think, harm our brains. I think we, we are not, it is a muscle to engage in critical thinking and to constantly challenge your ideas. And we're constantly being told, don't challenge your ideas, don't expand your horizons, don't hone your arguments. Uh, over the course of decades or generations, I mean, this cannot be a good trend. Well, I, I think people are ultimately going to remain intellectual creatures. Um, even if the universities don't succeed in fostering that to the extent that they should. So I'm, I, I'm capable of optimism there. Um, but I, I think that um, we are going to... I, I'll tell you what I'm most worried about, really. We lose sociology or anthropology. Um, that's a, a relevant and interesting literature, but it's not a critical literature. But um, we really do need to hang on to a conventional Western objective scientific uh, worldview when it comes to research in areas like science and engineering. And if we are unable 
really. To and that is a very adversarial arena. I mean, by and large, you move ahead in that arena uh, by putting your ideas into on public display. Um, you give presentations. You talk about them. You invite challenge. You're anxious for the challenge. You want it to come because you've already improved the work as far as you can take it on your own, and you need feedback from other skeptical people who are going to help bring to your attention what you've missed. And that's how we execute improvement. And we we really can't afford to lose that sort of capacity for open discourse there. Otherwise, we lose part of our capacity for science. And it's that capacity that has brought so much advance to, to society and um, pre- presented so many new opportunities for transaction and exchange and new products and um, new tools and new opportunities. So I'm, um, I, I do worry quite a bit about that, and I'm, I am unsure. I'm hopeful that we are going to be able to retain this capacity for discourse and challenge in at least that sphere. Um, I believed for a bit that it would persist in economics, um, but I no longer think that's the case. I think that uh, we are seeing a diminution of uh, a capacity for that kind of exchange, even in, in what was, from, from my point of view, the most important um, element of social science. And that has affected business schools also, because I, I really I thought that the, the dominance of economic thinking in business schools would, to some degree, protect them, but it, it really has not. So I'm selfish about this. Um, well, I, I think that part of what education is for is to create intellectuals, but part of what it is for is just to create thinking people that you know, whose lives are not organized around the life of the mind, but rather around families and um, their jobs and uh, making their way in the world and thinking through decisions. Um, and I imagine, well, I am hopeful that we're not going to lose our ability to do that because this, this is a society in which you really have to be able to compete to thrive and to compete, to compete effectively. You you have to be able to think, and you've got to be able to think about contingencies. You've got to be realistic. Um, you've got to understand the nature of human behavior, and particularly human economic behavior. And if you haven't been trained to do that, the world's going to be a very confusing place. Um, so I look at a lot of students whom we're supposed to be in charge of trying to help, and we're allowing them to become confused. And while I don't know exactly what the consequences of all that will be, I, I don't. I don't think it results in necessarily a, um, some change in the rate of specification of um, humankind, where you know we we become incapable of critical thought. Um, I think we'll remain plenty capable, but um, we need to exercise it more if we're going to move ahead. And I'm selfish. I want us to. I want us to move ahead. And as I said, particularly selfish about uh, engineering, science, and, and technology, because so much flows from that arena that it's uh, it's critically important. And we we need to maintain a f- an open focus there, where we we're frank and um, prepared to compare notes and. Uh, to identify weaknesses so that we can purge the weaknesses and resolve differences so that we can improve hypotheses and guesses about what to do next and what to try next.
Professor James Moore is with me, USC professor of engineering and policy. I want to get your take on some of uh, more specifics in, in your field, but I, I would like to hear from you why you thought it was important to display the Blue Lives Matter flag. But perhaps more interestingly, what was the rationale that USC suggested to you that you should take it down? My own objectives were partially pedagogic. I have been influenced by, to some degree by the work of Heather MacDonald. Um, I, she has an interesting take on crime statistics, what they mean and how they relate to some of our policy decisions. And one of the fundamental positions when it comes to how markets operate and what they deliver is that public authority is there to enforce property rights and enforce contracts, and that includes the social contract. And this is breaking down. Uh, We're seeing a surge in crime in the U.S., and we are inhibiting our ability to transact. And it's the transactions and the benefits of trade that make our lives better. And we we lose access to that if we don't uh, maintain order. And so I'm, I, I think that connection is not often made in the minds of students, it's certainly not what they're going to hear uh, from the university leadership or from the deans of their schools who are messaging them with very progressive ideas. And so I, I wanted to draw attention to the role of, of order in the economy and society. Um, and I, in general, markets are not chaotic places. They generate a lot of order, but um, people have to be secure in their property and property rights for exchanges to occur. So it's a really fundamental concern, and I wanted to draw attention to it because it was going too frequently undiscussed. Um, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that um, in, I'll, I'll, I've been persuaded by McDonald's work and her analyses that uh, the conventional wisdom that uh, black Americans are at special risk from right. the police. Sorry, go ahead. Didn't mean to cut you. Yeah, I, I just, I just want to ask you about because it is significant that you're in engineering and economics and why would – uh, why would your position on this issue, as divisive as it is, though it shouldn't be, of course, I'm fully in your camp, uh, but why would anyone care, given the way universities have always encouraged, uh, almost always from the left, but always have encouraged people to take an, an active role, both faculty and students in politics uh, and in social issues? Why would you displaying this flag as a STEM teacher, why would that make a difference at all? Like They shouldn't care at all. And uh, if the shoe's on the other foot, of course they wouldn't care. If you were displaying a Black Lives Matter flag or even Antifa flag, they wouldn't care. I think part of it is um, the rationale. First, I'll respond to your first question because I haven't. Um, what rationale did the university have for asking me to take it down? There had been complaints from students, and they take student um, goodwill very seriously. And it took me a while to connect the dots, but I, I think that their concern was that as we try to attract uh, members of underrepresented groups, that um, the flag might be seen as hostile messaging. And uh, it took a while for me to realize that they thought that um, it w- was connected to extremist positions. Um, white supremacy, that sort of thing. And, well, that's not how the flag has come about, how that particular banner has come about. That's not, I think, what it represents in the in mainstream society. 
activity to any extent. I did a little investigating to try to find out where this complaint, how this complaint had flowed within the university. And there have been some complaints directly to my school, and then some apparently came through our HR department. And that's very odd because um, HR, human resources, doesn't typically have a lot of standing in what faculty have to say to each other or to students. But uh, somehow the complaint was taken seriously. That was from the central administration. And it was taken seriously by my school, and that's what prompted my, my school to reach out to me and ask to remove the flag. So they were not all that interested, really, in explaining themselves. They were interested in making the request to see that if I would see if I would go for it. Um, I ultimately did not go for it. Um, but they were uncomfortable making the request to some degree because they knew, I think, that they were compromising uh, some values to have to do so. Uh, now, exactly why they were prepared to do that, um, I haven't. I haven't had a chance to talk with the most senior people involved to try to to try to find out. Um, so I'm. Anyway, uh, forgive me. I, I got distracted thinking about uh, that in those that set of interactions with those folks. So, uh, Professor James Morgan, USC professor of engineering and policy, uh, a fascinating story. And uh, what is it like, and I guess this might be the last question I have time for today, unfortunately, but what what is it like just to be a professor who, and I don't think you describe yourself as a conservative. I think uh, according to what I know about you, you're a libertarian, and it's a, just walking around campus knowing that there's a chance just because you appeared on this radio show, for example, and we had a respectful conversation about what's going on at your school and in this country, that could be used against you. And is that exhausting? Is that exasperating? Is that you do fear for your job because of things like that? And overall, if you do feel like that, how is that healthy in American academia? It's not healthy. Um, My institution, in some respects, is doing better than others. I mean, there are many institutions that have compromised the academic freedom of their, their faculty in very... Um, direct and obvious ways, and I think um, the University of Southern California is hesitant to be labeled that way or to be seen that way. Uh, so it's better at USC than at some places. Um, it is disquieting to uh, be to, for, to know that my my own ideas are completely alien uh, within the institution. That's always, to some degree, been true. Um, you're right, I am libertarian. Um, typically, in my classes, uh, at some point, students would stop me and say, wait, you're you're Republican, aren't you? And I, I would say, no, no, wait, this will not be on the midterm. But um, the, uh, the Democrats only want to tax me. The Republicans want to arrest me. Um, and that, that I said, that's a little extreme. But that was just to amuse them. And then, I, you know, we'd talk a little bit about... Um, libertarian points of view and um, how the collection of ideas wasn't really mainstream within either party and um, how it was market-oriented and uh, the economic thinking embedded in it and the general idea of trying to get things done with more freedom rather than less and the prospect of smaller government. And so this was always just a a sort of off-the-cuff discussion that took place in, in class. It would be, and it was fun, 
right? But um, it would be a little difficult to do now. It would be more hostile. So uh, I often have to, to teach about subjects that involve um, how people make decisions and how economies operate in conjunction with how engineered systems are operating. And so you can't take human behavior and incentives out of that discussion. As, a, as I would talk about the, the relevant human dimensions of the systems we were, we were studying, um, my point of view, I think, would become a little bit a little bit apparent. I admire your courage, and please stick with it. Know you have a lot of supporters in a broad audiences, not just this one. Our thanks to Paul D'Amelio and Greg Evan, our producers, who helped put together the special episode for today. And thanks to all of you who told 10,000 friends and family members about Breitbart News and encouraged people over the Thanksgiving holiday to subscribe to the new podcast. I really appreciate that. And it does a world of good for the cause uh, of helping Breitbart grow and be strong. Uh, AlexMarlow.com for all my socials if you want that. And as always, I recommend my book, Breaking the News. You can get that on audiobook as well. Uh, that'll do it for today, and we'll be back Monday live, 6 a.m. Eastern on SiriusXM Patriot Channel and another edition of the podcast as well. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.